We're in a ser- series here at the South uh, on fences. Uh, Aaron already kicked us off, and this morning we're continuing in that and looking at a kind of fence. When we say fences, we mean, of course, barriers between people. And one of the most damaging and most common is blaming. And that's what we want to look at this morning. And this has a real pedigree because blaming is something that goes clear back to the very beginning of the story in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. So let's look at that. I'm going to read a few verses from Genesis 3, the first instance in the scripture of blaming, starting in 3 verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Of course, this is after Adam and Eve take from the tree of knowledge, which God had said not to do. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife heard, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, here comes drum roll, please, the first blame. The man said, the woman you gave to me, gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So we're only in the third chapter of Scripture. We've already got two instances of blaming first Adam, then, of course, wife, his wife. Blaming, it begins in Eden. Adam and Eve both, when confronted with their sin, and that's one of the things we need to see as we study blaming, how it becomes a fence, and the resources Scripture gives us to get free from blaming, because it's in all of us. I do it. We all do it. They blame shifted, and one of the things this is a sign of, this is the blaming is a sign of something. Adam and Eve were not trusting God. If, they had, if their hearts had been full of trust and faith in God, they would have said, Lord, we sinned. We just have to bring this, this, what we've done, we have to just bring it in front of you and give it to you. You're wise enough and faithful enough. You can, you can sort it out, whatever happens, whatever the outcome, we'll trust you. But that's not what they did. They tried, they tried first to hide from him in the trees, and then they tried to hide what they had done by blame shifting. Neither trusted God enough to take responsibility for what they had done and simply lay it at God's feet and believe him to work it out. Blaming starts in Eden, but blaming is still with us. It's in every human being. It's in every family. It's in children. It was his fault. It was her fault. It's part of our fallen 
condition. If we look around the, if we look in scripture and we look around the world, we see things that are signs of our fallen, fallenness. Like we can't pronounce English words like fallenness. We see death. How many cemeteries did some of us drive past on the way to get here this morning? Because our world is full of death. Death began in the garden with human disobedience, and now death is part of our condition. The thorns that come up out of the ground in Genesis 3, at God's appointment, it's part of his judgment, it's part of fallen the fallen world's condition. Someone has called it the B chromosome. We know about chromosomes, and there's the chromosomes that make us male or female, X and Y chromosomes. Well, someone suggests there's a B chromosome. It's part of our makeup. It's the blame chromosome. And in the right circumstances, the B chromosome, the tendency to blame and blame shift, it just comes up unbidden all of a sudden. It's everywhere. If I say to someone, oh, come on, it's a way of saying what you're saying has no value. I'm accusing you of having nothing valid to say. It's a form of blaming. It's nothing compared to what you did. It's the elder's fault. Nobody's ever said that at Gateway, but we'll leave that for alone for now. It's the elder's fault. Or it's the people's fault. Pastors, exasperated pastors have been known to say that. It's your mother's fault. There has been known for husbands to say that to their wives. It's your mother's fault. But she usually says, he usually says that when she has just said it's his mother's fault. Poor mothers-in-law, what will we do? Blaming is part of who we are But praise the Lord, there is an answer, and it's very basic. It's not easy to walk in, but it's not complicated. The answer for blaming is being God-trusters, being God-trusters. It's something we have to grow in that our spontaneous default setting, whatever happens, is to trust God. We got an email this week. Our son is scrambling because of some unforeseen circumstances in pulling together the funding for his son to go to get to university. It's getting a bit more complicated. They've changed countries several times, and the loans don't come through really, really easily. My first reaction was not to trust God. My first reaction was to become anxious. You know, we need a new default setting. Your default setting is the first thing you automatically, spontaneously do. And when we are God-trusters, that's the first thing we will do. We will trust. Trusting God, being God-trusters, is the remedy for blaming. Let's see some examples of this in Scripture. God-trusters don't have to blame shift. They don't need to do it because they know God will sort things out. They know God will set things right. Now this is particularly important when the, the need for trusting God and the, and the risk of blaming comes in as the result of someone's failure, like a spiritual failure, a moral failure. These kinds of things can be very, very damaging. And in 
moral failure or blame um, spiritual failure contexts, there's a particular urgency that we hold on to God and trust Him. Here are some examples. In 1 Samuel 15, King Saul is Israel's king. He starts off pretty good. The first 12, 11 or 12 chapters of 1 Samuel are largely about Saul, and he does some pretty good stuff. He gets an army organized. They have a few battles with Philistines. Saul shows himself very, very able in that those conflicts. He's a natural leader. People trust him. But then God asks something of Saul that Saul is not entirely willing to do. God says, I want you, there's a, you're, they go to war against the Amalekites, a tribe that had been very, very unjustly hostile toward Israel. And God sends them in warfare against the Amalekites, and God gives Saul a very specific direction about the way, in this case, they're to wage war. In those days, when you went to war, there was normally, if you win, if you won, there would be spoil. You could bring back the wealth, the riches, the cattle, the livestock, sheep and goats that you got from your enemies. And often enough, the people who won would simply keep that stuff as the spoils of battle. In this case, 1 Samuel 15, Israel is at war, and when they go to war against the Amalekites, God says, by the way, Saul, this time, no spoil. I want you to simply destroy everything. You don't bring back any souvenirs. You don't bring back any wealth. You don't bring back livestock. Nothing, nothing, nothing. The prophet Samuel, that's him in the elegant robe in the, in the image, he comes to check out and see whether Saul has obeyed the Lord. And when he gets there, he can hear the sound of cattle and sheep, the bleating, the mooing, the baaing of the livestock because Saul has not obeyed God's directions about not bringing back any spoil. Saul blames the people. You can look at it. It's First Samuel fifteen twenty one. He just he basically says the people made me do it. This moment is a rerun of what we looked at minutes ago in the Garden of Eden. Think back. God comes in person, and He confronts Adam and Eve. Now God comes through the word of the prophet Samuel, and He confronts King Saul. We remember what Adam and Eve did. They blamed. They started pointing the fingers. Saul does the same thing. It's a replay of the Garden of Eden. He's not blaming his wife. He's not blaming the snake. He's blaming the people. Saul was not a God truster. If he had been, if his default setting was to simply trust God, thinking, I know I'm going to be ashamed. I'm going to be put to shame. I'm going to be publicly disgraced. But I'm just going to have to trust God. And I can do that because God's trustworthy. And he could have hung on. He could have gone that way, but he didn't. He equivocated, he blame-shifted, and he tried to weasel out of the moment. Now, write that in your memory board. Hold on to it. And then go a generation forward 
to another king. This is in 2 Samuel. Almost that whole book of 2 Samuel is about David, his glories and his failures, both of which are abundant. There's another confrontation scene. God comes to Adam and Eve and confronts them in the garden. God comes through the ministry of the prophet Samuel and confronts disobedient King Saul. Well, now God comes again, again through the ministry of a prophet. This is Nathan. This is in the aftermath, so to speak, of David's grievous sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then a just as grievous sin of scheming to have Bathsheba's husband stricken stricken down on the field of battle. God speaks to the prophet Nathan and basically tells Nathan what has gone on. Nathan comes and confronts David. I love this moment. It shows integrity on Nathan's part. This took courage. He could have been put to death with being this direct and talking to a king. But he speaks the truth. If you know the scene, you'll remember it. He, Nathan comes in to David's palace and he, he tells that little parable. It's only three or four verses long. He says, Your Majesty, I need to tell you something. There were two men. One had a hundred sheep. One had one sheep. And then unexpectedly, the guy with the hundred sheep got unexpected company coming for dinner. And rather than slaughter one of his own sheep and use that for the dinner, he went next door and grabbed the one sheep that his poor neighbor had, brings that back and cooks it for dinner for dinner, and gives it to his guests. Of course, a manifestly unjust story. David flies into a rage. He interprets that story literally, which I go literal on most things in the Bible, but not everything's meant to be literal, and this was not. David interprets it literally which means he misinterprets it because it wasn't about two guys with sheep. It was about him. He was the culprit. And David flies into a, ra- into a rage and he says to Nathan, Surely that man, the one you've just told me about, must die. And then the moment, of course this is just an artist's impression in the painting, Nathan very bravely like this, Your Majesty, you are that man. And David said three words that didn't eliminate all the pain and the fallout from this, but they kept him in God's hands. He said these three words. This is in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. I have sinned. You know, God doesn't love it when we sin because he knows the damage it will do. But he loves it when we trust him enough when we've sinned to say, I have sinned. There was a quality in David. This this man, he was an adulterer. He was a murderer indirectly. But there was a quality in him of being a God truster. Something Saul tragically lacked. This is what saves David. It doesn't save him from everything. There's all kinds of fallout from the Bathsheba thing. Very grievous. But it saves him. He remains chastened and disciplined in his relationship with God. And he remains king. It saves him. I have sinned. There's a goodly number of children, goodly number of wives, husbands, different parts of our families that 
wish they could have heard that from someone else in the family. I grew up with an alcoholic dad. He was not a good scene. Police at the door, in our front door sometimes, the neighbors would call because they'd hear the violence in our house. And there was never any ownership. The poor man, he died when I was quite young. And he could, he never, he wasn't a God truster, so he couldn't just look at what he'd done and step back and say, I have sinned. I need help. Saul couldn't do that. David did. I have sinned. You know what? what David's allowing it to happen. He's saying, I've sinned and I need God to just come now and do whatever he will do. I'll have to trust God. What's coming may not be very pleasant, but I know it will flow out of the righteousness and goodness and faithfulness of God. God trusters are confident in God to faithfully judge and work out the outcomes. We won't fight back and forth if we trust God. We'll say, he's big enough. He's bigger than my hang-ups. He's bigger than your hang-ups. Let's be God trusters, especially in the face of any kind of moral failure, which is, of course, what was going on here. God trusters. Let's be God trusters. There's another kind of situation where being God trusters is very urgent. God trusters know how they don't have to blame shift because they know that God will provide. We have the next image. There it is, the picture I painted this week of a boat. God trusters don't have to blame shift because they know God will provide. Not only like as David knew, they, they know God will faithfully work out his righteousness in the face of failure. He'll work out his faithfulness and his provision in the face of need. Mark chapter 8 is a vivid image of, what, of how God wants us to respond in the face of a need that we can't see how it's going to be met. Right immediately after the second of Jesus' two miraculous feasts, the, the two loaves and fishes miracles, he does it twice. The first time it's with 5,000 people. Shortly thereafter, he does it again with a slightly smaller crowd, or it's 4,000. And right after the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus and the disciples all get into the boat. They frequently crisscross back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. And right after the second of the two feasts, miraculous feasts, we get another boat journey. They get into the boat and they go some distance out from the shore. And then one of the disciples all of a sudden says, Hello, uh, who was in charge of bringing the bread? And everybody looks at each other, and it even specifically says, in Mark's account, it says they had forgotten to bring bread. So we've got 13 grown men in a boat that has to make its way by rowing, the physical exertion of rowing. If you look on a map, a Bible map of the Sea of Galilee, it's not a huge body of water by any stretch, but to row all the way across it is going to need physical exertion and physical energy physical stamina. So 13 people, what have they got to go on? And somebody manages in the bottom of the boat to find at last one loaf, one loaf for 13 people. You take the normal loaf of bread and pull it apart into 13 pieces, you get your piece and that's all you've got to get yourself across the Sea of Galilee. This is custom made 
to get people exasperated with one another. And so a discussion, probably better described as an argument, breaks out among the disciples. Who was supposed to bring the bread? Whose fault was it? So the blame thing is up and running all over again. Jesus calls them out of their blame shifting to be God trusters. He asks them a question. When I fed the 5,000, what was left over? And they think back, and if I can't remember the exact details. There, there's my limitations. I think it was 12 big baskets after he fed the 5,000. 12 big baskets of leftovers. He says, that's right, 12. When I fed, fed the 4,000, what was left over? <coughs> they said seven baskets. I think I got the numbers right. He says, don't you get it? When I'm around, there's no lack. When I'm around, there's no lack. Be God-trusters. Now somehow, they made it across the lake on that one loaf. There's no more details that we have about that incident. But notice what he calls them to do. He doesn't say, wait a minute, who was in charge of the bread? He doesn't try and investigate it or or analyze it, or anything like that. He simply reminds them of his past faithfulness with food. What have you got to worry about? I'm here. I was there on that first feast. I was there in the second feast, both of which happened in the middle of nowhere, in a desert, a desolate place in both places. Now it's in the middle of the, of the, lake, the Sea of Galilee, so there's no natural access to food. He calls them to remember God's past faithfulness, which means if he's calling them to be God-trusters. If my default setting is to simply trust God, I won't blame shift. Do a brief mental inventory right now as I speak, quietly in your brain. Who am I right now it's some place in my head blaming somebody I'm mad at because they, I think what they're doing is insensitive or selfish or whatever. I'm blaming them. Okay, think of a place that's going on. I've got one in my head. Then ask yourself this. Are you being a God-truster with that situation? Now, the situation I've got in my mind, when I look at it, I realize I definitely am not being a God-truster. So I've got work to do. I need to talk to God. I need to ask God to talk to me. To change my default setting from blame shift to trust, to trusting God. Third, God trusters don't have to blame shift. That's the, liberate, the liberating thing about all this. We don't have to live in blame, blaming, in blame shifting. We don't have to do that because God's provided a way out of it. God-trusters don't have to blame shift because they're joined to the new Adam. As we've seen, this blaming business begins with Adam. He was the first blame shifter. 
And something, you know, we get the issues like the doctrine of original sin, which I do believe in, although I realize it's, it's a controversial one and it depends on how you formulate it and so forth. But it has, part of what that doctrine is about is that it's like a virus, a moral virus gets into us, into the human race through Adam and Eve. So spiritually, if you look at Romans 5, this is very clear. We are all joined to Adam. He's our earthly father, as it were. And there's something that he brought into the human story that has down the generations got communicated from father to children, children to their children, and on, all the way from Garden of Eden to Winnipeg, Manitoba this morning. It's there. Little kids have it. Adults have it. There's a solution. God has sent a new Adam. Now stay with me for a moment because I want to play something out from Scripture. And when we see it, to me anyway, it's very dramatic and very compelling. Christ's earthly mission concludes, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, in a garden. Is that an accident? I suggest not. It's the Garden of Gethsemane where he wrestles it out in enormous emotional pain whether or not he's going to obey God. And that, of course, is the precise point where Adam went off the rails because he didn't obey God. Christ prays his name. This is the reason we're saved this morning. He obeyed God at great personal cost. He's finally signed on and said, okay, whatever this mission is going to require, I'll do it, trusting you, Father. He wrestled that issue through in a garden. I believe that moment and even the location was deliberately orchestrated by God because he is sending Jesus to reverse the damage the first Adam did back in the original garden. So now we have a different garden and we have a new Adam. Now not only is Jesus' resolve to be obedient to God resolved, settled in a garden, his ability to not blame comes out in a garden. Because shortly after his agonized, not my will but yours be done prayer, shortly after that, the guards come. The guards come to arrest him. If there was ever a moment when the blame shift chromosome was screaming to come through, don't forget Jesus is descended from Adam and Eve as well. I know God's his father but he is fully human, Jesus. Sinful, no. Human, yes. If there would ever be a strong impulse for him to blame, the guards come with their clubs and swords. He's going to be tempted. You can be sure he was tempted. Hebrews 4 says he, he was tempted in every way that we are tempted, and that includes the temptation to blame shift. He could blame the disciples. He could blame the Pharisees. He could blame Harry down the street, something to save his skin. But he doesn't. 
He's doing a rewind, if you think of modern tech with tape recordings and videos and so forth. Jesus is doing a rewind and a restart. But when the video restarts, it's got a different actor playing Adam, namely Christ himself, because he doesn't blame Adam, along with Eve, Adam was guilty and he blame-shifted. Christ was innocent and he didn't blame. Let's see what happens. Instead of blaming, if we can come to the next slide there, great. Instead of blaming, he takes the blame. He was the only person on the planet at that stage that was not blameworthy. But he took the blame for all the blameworthy ones, which is me and all of us here this morning and the whole rest of the human race. He takes the blame. But what does God do? See, if only King Saul, if only Adam, if only Dave Perry could have understood this all along if we simply trust God, cast ourselves on his mercy, he will vindicate. And Jesus demonstrated that in spades. He took the blame. He trusted God with the horrific outcome it was going to lead to, namely going to the cross, dying on the cross. But God vindicated him on the morning of the third day. And in the Gospel of John, there's an interesting detail about the morning of the third day because the tomb was in a, who can tell me, a garden. Is this an accident? I think not. This is the new Adam. God is arranging even circumstances of location so that we will understand the significance of this. God is restarting the whole human story with a new lead actor. Jesus stands before us, both going into his suffering and then coming forth from the tomb, as the ultimate God-truster. He's the ultimate God-truster. Again, in the Gospel of John, take some time, maybe today or this week, go through John's resurrection account, And you'll notice he not only emphasizes and highlights the place, the garden, he also emphasizes the time. He keeps coming back to this phrase, the first day of the week. The first day of the week. Why is he saying that? Well, because it was the first day of the week. Yeah, we know that. But he also says that it was just when the sun was coming up. It was just when light was breaking forth. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Do we get it? First day, day one, there was evening and there was morning. The first day, God said, let there be light. Do we hear the echoes in John's account here? The other Gospels do it as well, but not quite as explicitly. John is saying, he's wanting us to see this is a new beginning for the whole world. It's a new first day. It's new light is going to shine now through the triumph of God, through Jesus, over sin and over death, and even over blaming. Our answer for getting free of 
the whole blame-shifting syndrome and all the damage that it causes, our answer for that is to hang on to this new Adam. He took the blame that we so richly deserve. He took it into the tomb and left it there. And God broke him out of the tomb in this great vindication, God's great endorsement of Christ, who is the the great God-truster. And now we need to hold on to him. Let's be like the disciples, especially Simon and John. Remember that? And when they hear the word, when Mary Magdalene comes and says, He's alive, He's alive, He's alive. I've seen Him, He's alive. And they, John says, They ran to the tomb. They physically ran. Are we running this morning? Are we running at this point in our lives to connect with the new Adam, the risen one? When we connect with Him, He will enable us to do what He did, and namely to not blame, to not blame shift. Even when the guards come to unjustly arrest us, we can say, I'm not going to blame, I'm going to trust. Be God trusters. I'm going to give it back to Aaron in a second. I want to take us through a checklist. If you have pens and notebooks ready, jot these down. By faith in the new Adam. Please hold on to that title this morning, the new Adam. You know, I remember talking to someone once at the church I said, how are you doing? And he said, oh, I don't know, same old, same old. (laughs) We've all had enough same old. We need some new. And we get the new, including new freedom from blame shifting by hanging on to the new Adam. By faith in the new Adam, we can choose to be a God truster. I can choose to be a God truster. By faith in the new Adam, I can choose choose not to blame shift. The situation I obliquely described to you a few minutes ago, somebody I'm thinking, if only they had done such and such. You know what? I'm blaming them. I can choose to not do that if I hang on to the new Adam, the one who didn't blame. By faith in the new Adam, I can choose to trust God in problems that I have caused. Sometimes those are the hardest things to trust God in. There's been a train wreck and you realize you were at the We're driving the engine, and it's your fault. How do you trust God with that? Well, ask King David. He had to learn that. By the way, go another. I'll give you another assignment, along with reading John's resurrection account. Go and read Psalm 51. Psalm 51, 51. It's the psalm, this precious, powerful psalm. David writes as he's recovering from the damage he did to himself with the business with Bathsheba and how he discovered God's forgiveness. Psalm 51, it's powerful stuff. By faith in the new Adam, I can choose to be like David, to trust God in the midst of problems I have caused. Number four, by faith in the new Adam, I can, ch- I can choose to trust God in problems others have caused. Maybe you're in a mess and you didn't put yourself in it, but some other guy did. Well, are God's hands tied? Can he reach out to you and look after you in the midst of something somebody else did, Scripture would say a glorious yes. We can trust him with that. By faith in the new Adam, I can choose to join in the new beginning that he, the new Adam, has brought. First day of the week, the sun's coming up. 
It's a new beginning. It's a new beginning. Let me pray for us. I'll turn it back to Aaron. Father, we thank you that we don't have to go on with the same old, same old. Lord, I know looking back, I have set up fences with people I loved by blaming them. I ask you to forgive me for that. And Lord, wherever any of us here this morning have to wrestle with issues like that, I pray you would gently and powerfully enable us through your Holy Spirit. And this morning now, we want to turn from the same old, same old, and turn to the new. On the first day of the week, let there be light. Jesus comes forth in a garden to begin the story all over again. And he invites us to come with him. Amen.